Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Hey, Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I'm joined by my ghoul friend, Jessica. Wingapo. The fucking voice. Hello. Hello. You're welcome for that voice. (laughs) Hello, guys. Today, it is a true crime week here on the podcast, and we are going to be talking about the downtown posse from Dayton, Ohio. But before we get into it, we got all kinds of fun stuff to chat about. We do. We do, we do. Before we start into business and drinks, we have a Christmas giveaway that is going live today when you are hearing this. So it's going to be an ugly Christmas sweater contest. Yes. So this is going to run today, the 9th through the 22nd. We want to give you guys ample time. This is going to be cross-platforms. We'll kind of compile it all on the Facebook group so everybody can see all the pictures and all that great stuff. But if you're in the Facebook group, please submit there. We want to see your guys' best ugly Christmas sweaters. So it can be on you, on your dog, on your cat, whatever. But if it is on a pet, we do want you in the picture so it proves it is your pet, not just some random one off, you know, Pinterest, Instagram, Google. Mm Mm-hmm. But yes, we would love to see those ugly Christmas sweaters because, you know, that's one of my favorite things and I think one of Jessica's favorite things in this festive time of year. But more importantly, you're probably wondering, what the fuck are you winning this time? Mm -hmm. So if you remember our amazing Halloween care package we did with all of those goodies that we sent to Mandy... Full of the the movies. We sent Halloween Town. We mm-hmm. sent some candy. We sent some wine glasses. We sent some Three Spook Girls swag. Large flat rate full of stuff. We're going to do that with winter stuff. Winter, Christmassy, holiday, New Year's, all kinds of great stuff for you guys. For the winner. Mm-hmm. We're, I'm excited about it. Hell Yes. So, yeah, to enter, just drop that picture. If you're not in the Facebook group, go join. If you don't do Facebook, you can DM us the picture or email even um, on any of the other socials. The way we are going to choose the winner for this is we have formed a committee to vote and also, you know, make it non-biased by any means. Matt and Thomas, a.k.a. our husbands, a.k.a. our interns, (laughs) Well, one is our intern and one is our accountant. Yes, yes. Our staff. <laughs> they are going <laughs> They are going to be uh collaborating to choose the winner, but we would love for you guys to enter and try to win this amazing box and we just wanted to do this as an extra end of the year thank you to you guys and things like that. So, yeah, so that is that. That's our end of the year care package thing. Um, I think we're going to try to do one for each season. So, yes, check us back out 
after the holidays, maybe around Valentine's Day or so. Ooh. Yes. But uh, yeah, if you are new here, hello. Sorry. Extra long intro today, but this is how we do. Thank you guys for tuning in and thank you for returning for all of our other spooksters. If you would like to hang out with us on socials, like I just rambled about the Facebook group, all of that is in the show notes. I have a lovely link tree for you. You can find us on everything. Our handle is at Three Spooked Girls and the Facebook group is Three Spooked Girls Official. Mm-hmm. We are also on Patreon. We are an indie podcast. We do everything in-house. So if you would like to support the show, support us and get some cool swag and bonus content, you can head over to patreon.com slash three spooked girls or again, link tree for you. I try to make it easy. Um, and we have merch. Get some Christmas presents for your fellow spookters or treat yourself as a God damn it. What's her name? Donna. Donna. Donna Meagle. Donna. <laughs> From Parks and Rec says, treat yourself. But yeah, that's what we got for that. So Jessica, what have you and the Bell Witch chosen for our drink this week? Well, Kate and I had a long chat about the fact that it's cold as fuck outside right now. I hear you. Because it's winter. I mean, I really have no complaints. It was 11 degrees today. Yeah, and it was only like 50 something (laughs) degrees here. So that's cold for there, though. It's true. And I got to stay inside so I didn't have to go outside. Because awesomely enough, my dog loves the cold when we're at my in-law's house and she can go play in the backyard. But when we're at my apartment that has no backyard, she does not like the cold. I think it also because my in-laws keep it like they have a bigger house than us. Like they do what a lot of Americans do, which is put on a sweater versus like crank that shit up, which Mm -hmm. I guess is economically smart. But I'm spoiled because I live in a small apartment. (laughs) (laughs) I can crank it up to 79 and love winter I wear shorts and a t-shirt all year long because, <laughs> yes. But because we were talking about that, and I know a lot of you live in colder climates, I thought of this drink. It's a drink that's inspired by a place I went to. It is red wine hot chocolate. Mm. I went to the La Quinta Resort. It is a Wardoff Astoria hotel, and it's in Palm Springs. It's to die for if you ever are out there. It's fantastic. And this chef, well, I don't think he created it, but he created the most amazing cup I have ever had. He actually moved hotels. He went to the one in the, he went to a different location in in New York. And when we were there last, he, um, because we were there for my work, he actually sent them the recipe and they made us cups and it was delicious. Nice. So how you make red wine hot chocolate. You combine one and a half cups of milk. They suggest 2% milk. I always go for the whole milk because it gives it a little bit more body. And one third cup of dark chocolate chips in a saucepan over medium heat. Again, if you are making any kind of chocolate saucy type thing, use a double boiler because otherwise you're going to burn that shit. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a double boiler, just put a pot of water on the stove and put a metal, a metal bowl over it. Just want to clarify, do not use plastic and do not use glass. Yeah. Plastic will melt and glass, you will end up it shattering in your hand. So just fun facts. Stir the chocolate in the milk until fully incorporated and it's thick and creamy. Then add one cup of red wine, something full body like a Cabernet. I said that kind of like Craig for from Parks and Rec. I'd suggest something full bodied and bold. <laughs> and then remove from heat and pour into mugs and garnish with marshmallows or whipped cream or both. I don't know. Live your best life. And then it says to curl up in front of a fire with a comfy sweater and enjoy basically a perfect evening. Sounds like a perfect evening. 
I am not drinking with the red wine, but I do have hot chocolate tonight. Out of your HLN mug. I do. I just didn't have any red wine. Yeah, it's okay. Because my friend's giving drink it all up. That's okay. I've got coffee. Coffee is always good. <laughs> yes. But I have three drinks tonight. You'll be proud of me. I have water. Mm-hmm. I have Canada Dry, the ginger ale, because tis the season, and then my hot chocolate. Is it the cranberry one? Yes, it's so fucking good. But I also accidentally bought diet, but it does it's not bad. I'm still waiting for you to send me some. How do they not have this in Alaska? I don't know. It's nowhere. I've looked everywhere. It's so disappointing. I don't know what's with the state, but yeah, I've just got my coffee and my water tonight. So good. I'm struggle busting. I wanted to go to sleep at like six. So I was like all the caffeine. (laughs) (laughs) But you're so good at drinking caffeine because you go from like caffeine to like asleep. Yeah, it's true. I've witnessed it. Like I would be like, I drink caffeine and I'm like, hi, how are you? What are you doing? Let's go. Let's do something. It's 2 in the morning. That's fine. And Tara's like, I'm just going to finish off this cup of coffee and go to bed. I'm like, what? the? Yeah, I'm going to finish this coffee and we're going to record. And then um, it's nine my time right now. But then I will literally go to bed when we're done. So, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yes. But yes, so we are going to take our quick promo break and then we will be right back with you guys. So hang tight. Ghost stories are always scarier when they're told by the very people who experienced them. Hi, I'm Becky. And I'm Diana. And we're the hosts of the Homespun Hates podcast. We talk to people just like you who have come face to face with ghosts demons, haints, and other strange paranormal phenomena. All of it makes for a chilling good time. So grab yourself a sweet tea, turn off the lights, and listen to some eerie true ghost stories on Homespun Haints, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm not scared, are you? (laughs) (laughs) Hello, listeners. I'm Jaden McKell, and welcome to Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained. Spine-tingling supernatural stories, true crime, and riddles from the ancient world are all things to expect when you tune in to Straight Up Enigmas. Like the time we discussed the mysterious death of Alyssa Lamb, or share terrifying true stories from real people about sleep paralysis and shadow people. In one of our most recent episodes, I told the story of Debbie Kent, the sister of my dad's best friend from high school, who was abducted and murdered by serial killer Ted Bundy. Join us every Tuesday and dive into the world's weirdest riddles, unsolved cold cases, and ghostly encounters. You can find our Straight Up Strange episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Let's face it, most of us are usually glued to our phones. So what if I told you we have a great idea to connect you to friends, family, and your inner detective? Hunt a Killer is the fastest growing murder mystery subscription game that puts you in the mind of a detective. You'll shift through piles of documents, evidence, auto recordings, and case files, eliminating suspects until you crack the case and catch the killer. Hunt a Killer gets you talking and having fun together, whether it's game night or date night. And if you're a detective that prefers to work solo, Hunt a Killer is built so that you can choose how you want to play. With thousands of online community members and 2,000 five-star reviews on Trustpilot, it's no wonder Fast Company named them as one of the most innovative entertainment companies of 2019. Plus, 
A part of the proceeds of every box goes to the Cold Case Foundation to help fund cold case investigations. John E. Douglas, the FBI profiler who inspired the Netflix show Mindhunter, is the chairman of the board of this nonprofit foundation. It's the perfect activity for fall and winter, and you don't even have to leave your house. Hunt a Killer is an ideal murder mystery party game. Right now, just for our listeners, you can go to Hunt a Killer and use the code SPOOKED for 20% off your first box. Again, make sure to use our discount code SPOOKED, that's S-P-O-O-K-E-D, for 20% off your first box and to show support for us here on Three Spooked Girls. It's not just about catching the murder. It's about the friends you make along the way. Okay, welcome back, guys. We hope you enjoyed those promos. We are going to go ahead and get started. Uh, Like I said, we are talking about the downtown posse today from Dayton, Ohio. I am going to kick us off with the murders and the timeline and all of that stuff. And then Jessica is going to take it over with some interesting findings on a couple of these people and then go over the arrests and trials and aftermath and all of that. All right. So the members of the downtown posse include Marvelous Keen, age 19, Laura Taylor, age 16, Demarcus Smith, age 17, and Heather Matthews, age 20. Right off the bat, something that pretty much appalled me was how young these kids are. It's crazy. Yeah, they're like babies. Yeah, it's insane. They're all connected. So Laura was Keen. That was easier for my notes versus Marvelous, just so you guys know. Uh, Keen's girlfriend, and she would be considered the leader of the pack. She's an interesting one. So she had previously gotten out of juvie or jail. They A lot of the articles said jail, but of course she's a minor, so what have you. I mean, unless she did something else heinous enough that they sent her to regular jail. True. And when she was asked about as like for a character statement, things like that later down the road and like court and things like that, people would say, yeah, she was definitely capable of murdering somebody. So, you know, we're off to a great start. Mm-hmm. She sounds like the best friend you always wanted. Yeah. And that's honestly kind of terrifying for somebody so young. Right. She's the youngest out of all of them. So Heather was DeMarcus's girlfriend and the four were all friends. Uh, something to note was that what I found interesting was how keen he wasn't a troublemaker or anything like he was just an average kid he got decent grades you know things like that and she was the total opposite which i know for teens sometimes that's kind of common like this is me stereotyping usually it's the girl wants the bad boy kind of situation you know what i mean but maybe it was that Mm -hmm. or whatever but i know you'll kind of get into reasons why they think maybe that he got involved with what he did later that was just interesting to me So all of these crimes that they go on to commit are considered spree killings. A lot will go on over just a short period of time. If you're not exactly clear on what spree killing is, per FBI standards, it's classified as such when two or more murders occur without a cooling off period. The murders can be done by more than one person. The key thing is that there is no cooling off period at all. If there was one, this would put them more into serial killer territory, possibly. And other classifications for spree killings are several locations and also being fairly close in time, but spread enough apart that it's not as bunched together like a mass murder would be. They kind of intertwine a little bit, but if you kind of want to read up more on that, I do have one of my sources on there from 
the FBI website that does have like a whole page explaining that a bit more. But that was something that like spree killing and serial killers was something that was always a little bit muddled to me. So when I kind of like started reading more about it, it does make sense. Like obviously because serial killers can be months, years, like huge, huge, huge. But spree killing is like this is essentially over a weekend. So something like that. And for spree killings, they can also either have targeted victims or have random victims. It doesn't matter. So for our timeline, we're going to start on Christmas Eve of 1992, so December 24th. The first victim that they would have is Joseph Wilkerson, age 34, and he's um, he is quite an interesting character as well. So Laura knew Joseph and the three of them, so three of the four went over to his house. It was Laura, Heather, and Keen. The reason they had went over to his house was because Laura was trying to exchange sex for money, and it wasn't just going to be sex with her. She had promised an exchange between her, Heather, and Joseph. So keep in mind a 34-year-old man, a 16-year-old, and a 20-year-old for money. He wasn't the nicest of people is what Tara's getting at. Yeah. So there's that. And his home would be located on Prescott Avenue. Once they arrived and I guess kind of got things set up, they would tie Joseph up with electrical cords and then search the place for anything they could steal. After this, Keen shot him with a 32 caliber in the chest. And then Laura shot him in the head with a 25 caliber. So apparently one time wasn't enough. Once they had killed Joseph, they ransacked his home and also stole his car. This would be the group's way to transport themselves throughout the crimes, and then they would essentially use this home as their home base, and they would throw parties and hang out and all that stuff, all while his body was still there. Because, spoiler alert, he would not be discovered as dead until after they were caught. After this, that same day, DeMarcus would join the three and meet them over on Neal Avenue. Their next victim would be 18-year-old Danita Gilliatt. She was talking on the payphone at the time of her attack. Danita was a senior over at Patterson Cooperative High School, and she was also a mother to a two-year-old. The group didn't know her, so she'd be a random choice. So she was shot five times, and while investigating this crime scene, authorities found 25 caliber blazer aluminum bullet shell casings. And this would come into play later in helping them kind of piece stuff together because, like I said, a lot of this does not go together. In a lot of the articles, too, they described their actions as joy killings, which is just disturbing in itself, which just kind of like makes these kids even more just like effed up, like the situation fucked up. And I don't want to say all the kids because like I have my opinions on some of this stuff, but still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like the first time I had heard this about real people, you know, because when I hear like joy killings, to me, that was a very like something you'd hear. It made me think of like the Joker, as weird as that sounds. No, it, it's not something that gets thrown around. I mean, like when someone says joy killer, I think of some someone like Bundy, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. And Bundy, I know that what he did was like real, but for some, it also always feels very much larger than life. Right, right. So the group would end up stealing a few things from Danita. They took her coat, her Fila tennis shoes, and her backpack, which had a whopping 50 cents in it. That's what made this this particular killing like harder for me because 
not that you can justify a killing, but I get the whole fact that they may have been targeting her because they thought she had stuff. But it's like, at the end of the day, you got someone's used coat, a pair of sneakers, and fucking 50 cents. Right. Exactly. The third victim would be Jeffrey Wright, and his attack would happen on Yuma Place. He'd be a bit luckier than the others, though, as his attack did not result in his death. With that said, though, he was shot four times in his legs, but luckily he was able to escape over to a neighbor's house to get help and survive. After this, the four would return to Joseph's house, which is the first victim. As you remember, I said earlier, this was their their hangout, their hideout during all of this. Mm -hmm. So now it's the next day, which is Christmas Day or December 25th. The fourth victim would be another individual that they did know, and his name was Richmond Maddox, and he was 19. He was the ex-boyfriend of Laura. She essentially got him out of the house and to go on a car ride. The other three would be close behind in Joseph's vehicle. Eventually, Richmond would notice that they were being followed and knew something wasn't right because he tried to lose them, but of course, he would not succeed. Essentially, as soon as he hit the gas, Laura was like, hell no, and pulled out a weapon. She had a daring. I'm probably saying that wrong, but basically she had a handgun and she shot him in the right temple, which would kill him. And she proceeded to jump out of the vehicle before it would crash on Benton Avenue. So much of this is just so intense, like for kids that are so young. It's just it's crazy to me. When you read it, you think this is like a bad, like a bad B movie mm-hmm. plot. This is the Lifetime movie plot. Yeah. Because it's just like everything is sloppy. Everything is rushed. Everything is just overly dramatic. Yeah. But nope, this is this is definitely real life. And then the following day on December 26th, we would have our next two victims, Sarah Abraham and Jones Pettis. The four had gone to a shortstop mini market, which was a family-owned grocery store on West 5th Street. Laura would enter first to case the store, and then just a little bit later, the other three would join her. Keen would come in and kill again. He shot Sarah two times in the head, and Jones would be shot as well in his stomach and his hand, but he was able to survive. The four would leave the store with another, and this is sarcastic, big takeaway. This time they left with $44. So right now they at $44.50. Yeah, and some random things. Unfortunately, Sarah would die five days later. Uh, Upon investigation, casings like the ones found at Danita's crime scene would be found here by authorities. So things would start to be connecting a little bit, possibly, or at least they would see kind of have be like, okay, maybe similar because it'd be the same casings. The same day the four would claim their last two murder victims. The pair would be Wendy Cottrell, age 16, and Marvin Washington, age 18. These two were friends of the group. They were some of the kids that had been hanging out with them and things like that. So it's not random. It's ones that had been to them to Joseph's house. So they knew what was going on and things like that. Yeah. The four had began to get paranoid and think that they would end up telling somebody and they would somehow get out to authorities or to the wrong person that they had done these crimes. So essentially, they considered them loose ends. So they had to take care of them. And Keen and Demarcus went and picked up Wendy and Marvin and they bought them some beer and wine because I'm assuming they were just like, hey, we're going to go hang out. We're going to go party, something like that. 
And then they decided to pull over because Keen made the excuse he had to pee. So they pulled over into a gravel yard on Rickley Street. And then that's when the two kids were ordered to get out of the vehicle by Keen and Demarcus. And Wendy and Marvin were then taken behind a large pile of dirt. And that's where they were shot and killed. There was one final victim. Uh, Luckily, she was able to survive. She didn't get hurt or anything. They had came up to her and robbed her of her vehicle at gunpoint. And this was at the very end before they got caught. So that was the last. So a whirlwind of two days, a lot of murder by children, basically. Even the people that are technically over 18 you're still, I think, considered children. You're very young. You're very young. It's crazy. Yeah. But I'm going to hand it to Jessica now because she's got a little bit that I've kind of hinted at for some more background on Keen and some other key people or another key person and then also all the aftermath of all of this. Yes. So like Wendy and Marvin, there was another young man who was hanging out with the group. His name was Nick Woodson. And obviously, anyone who was around and went into Wilkerson's house would have instantly known that there was something wrong. They would have known that there was a dead man in the house. I mean, I don't know when the body starts to smell per se, but from what I gathered of this, they weren't like hiding the fact that there was a dead body in the house. Right. So I know that the downtown posse was getting very paranoid, but Woodson was also getting paranoid. Before they went to pick up Wendy and Marvin, they went to pick up Nick and Nick decided, you know what? I don't like this. So when they go to see Keen's brother's grave, Woodson is like, you know what? I got to bounce. I can't stay here. So he just leaves on foot from there. And then he gets home and he gets really paranoid because he feels like he knows too much. I mean, at this point, it's just like, like I said earlier, it's a bad Lifetime movie. It's a bad, cheesy 80s, like, shoot up movie. And there's always that guy who's like, oh, my God, they're going to kill me because I told or I'm going to tell. Like, think of like that kind of moment. Yeah. So Woodson is he's like, what do I do? Do Because there's two ways this could go. He could go and be part of the killing. He could tell them, hey, I want in. That way, like, they'd be like, oh, he wants in. So he'd be part of this so that he, you know, Mm -hmm. he can't, you know, snitch on us. But Woodson did the right thing and he called the police. And he basically told the police, like, look, I'm scared. I'm really paranoid that these people are going to come after me. And he just starts telling about the crimes and the robberies and the murders and just all these different things. And like Tara said, they had already started connecting things together because of the shell casings. But they were like, oh, my gosh, like, this is great information for us to have. So Woodson was like, I'm afraid for my life. So they were like, come here to us and we'll protect you. You're in our custody, like not arrested, but like you'll be in our protection to come here. So Woodson did. And they put an all points bulletin out for the car that they stole from Wilkerson, which Tara mentioned earlier was a Dodge Shadow. It's black. I looked it up. It is the most 90 looking freaking sedan I have ever seen. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, a little bit medium sized front with a snub trunk is what I can describe it as. Mm -hmm. So they put out this all points bulletin for this car because... Woodson was like, they've been driving around Wilkerson's car. So Sergeant John, I believe his name is pronounced Huber, Mm -hmm. was patrolling the area and he was patrolling down um, 
believe it's pronounced Kumler Road, when he saw a suspicious black sedan parked on the side of the road. On further investigation, he realized it was the Dodge Shadow. And then he ran the plates and it came back Joseph Wilkerson. So in the interim where he's like, he realizes this car could possibly be this one on the all points bulletin, but he's checking the license. Keen sees this police officer and takes off. So Sergeant John Huber calls, like takes off after the car, calls for backup. And basically they get a few, like a few blocks, but they get surrounded by the police. Now, three of the four people in this car do the intelligent thing, which is stay the fuck in the car because you're not getting evading arrest, all that kind of stuff. But not DeMarcus. DeMarcus decides, I am going to get the fuck out of this place. Bye, people. So he takes off on foot running and he makes it to a friend's house by the name of Sander Pinson. Now, the police are like hot on his trail. So they catch up to him and they knock on the door and Sandra answers and is like, what's going on, officers? I don't know if she's like in on it or is like going to lie and say that he was there. I'm not sure. So he gets to Sandra's house. And they like knock on the door. The police come in. She's being very helpful. And then this young man comes down the stairs. He's not wearing shoes and he's not wearing a shirt. So they're like, okay, well, who are you? And he goes, oh, my name's Dion. Well, there's this other guy at the house. And they ask the guy, like, who is that kid over there? And he goes, oh, that kid? That kid's Demarcus Smith. So his cover was blown. But you have to kind of give him some creativity because he took off his shirt and he took off his shoes, which means he had the wherewithal to know that he was running for the police because he did a bad thing. And he had the wherewithal to try to outsmart them. Because honestly, if that guy hadn't been there, he probably would have gotten away because, you know, they thought his name was Dion. Mm-hmm. Keen, Lauren and Heather just like chilled in the car. They Their arrest was extremely vanilla. They got taken into custody. There was no big incident. DeMarcus was just being overdramatic, apparently. <laughs> but, I mean, he could have gotten away. Um, when they were taken to the police station, it was like three of the four could not shut the hell up. Keen, DeMarcus, and Heather all told the investigators what they needed to hear. They told them about the murders and the robbers, all except for Wendy and Marvin. They didn't confess to those because they probably thought if they called the police on them, if they admitted to their murders, then that would be like witness tampering, which is bad because it's also like murder plus witness tampering. So the only one of them to kind of have the common sense of a murderer. Tara mentioned earlier that like we have opinions on some of the people that involved in this case. And Laura is like, I don't know. She shut the fuck up, lawyered up and then wouldn't talk to anyone. Everyone else is like, look, we did this. We're taking responsibility. We knew it was wrong. Blah, blah, blah. Not blah, blah, blah. But you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And a detective who was interviewing her stated, I don't know if I've ever met what I would call a hardened person at the age of 16, but that girl is cold hearted. Like, that's what a detective said about her. She's 16 years old. And he's like, she crazy. She evil type thing. Mm hmm. It was said that how this all began is Laura looked at her friends and said, hey, let's put a little drama in our lives. Laura, sweetie, that's not a little drama. No, Jesus. A little drama is going to pick a fight with like your ex, ex's girlfriend, you know, egging her car. I mean, it's a criminal defense, but at least people can be like, that's age appropriate behavior. Your behavior was like, oh, yeah, crazy. 
The only person to be offered a plea deal was Heather because she actually did not commit a single murder. She was there for all of them, for the most part, but she did not pull a trigger or kill anyone. But she was an accessory to murder. She was over the age of 18, which makes her a legal adult. She was 20, so it's not even like she was just over 18. She'd had a couple of years in the real world. I believe she had a little bit of a past, but not a crazy amount. So she was offered a plea deal to kind of like, you know, tell on the other people. She was in a state, or I should say is in a state, where the death penalty is active. So if she hadn't taken the plea deal, they probably would have prosecuted her through to um, the death penalty because of the amount of these crimes. And at any point in time, she could have tried to stop them. She would be held criminally responsible for what was happening around her. But she took a plea deal so that she wouldn't get the death penalty. As far as Taylor or Laura, Laura was... A minor. She was 16. She is African American. And at the time in her area, the NAACP stood up and said, We don't care that these are truly heinous crimes, but she is a young African American girl and she should not be penalized for that. She should not be tried as an adult because the prosecution wanted to try both Demarcus and Laura as an adult. Because of this, both Marcus and Laura were tried as juveniles, which Laura was the fucking ringleader of this shit. So the fact that she was not being tried as an adult and there have been crimes where people have um, done less heinous crimes and have been tried as an adult. Yeah. Laura, Heather and Demarcus all received the same sentences, which was 194 years or life, whichever comes first. So I don't think they're going to make it. To 194 years. Yeah. They are eligible for parole in 2131. So because Keen was 19 and he committed murders, he was tried separately. He actually opted out of a jury by a trial of peers and decided to face a panel of three judges. The three judges he faced was Robert M. Brown, Lee A. Bixler and Robert D. Nichols. So essentially, he just goes before judges. They hear it's kind of like a regular trial, but not as crazy. He went to sentencing very quickly. So he was captured on December 26, 1992. His sentencing date was December 10th, 1993. Prior to sentencing, Keene was described as showing little to no remorse at all. In fact, he was accosted in a hallway by a reporter asking him because he'd been found guilty, like how he felt about it. And he just didn't seem to have any kind of reaction at all. He just kind of seemed to be nonchalant. Like he kind of was giving a little quirky smile. Like he was trying to avoid any kind of communication with this reporter at all. So throughout the trial, he was basically seen as cold-hearted and no remorse. So at sentencing, when his mother was very emotional about, I know he did these heinous things, but please don't take my son away from me. He's all I have. Because Keen lost his brother the year before. His brother was in a, a robbery gone wrong. And then shortly after that incident happened where his brother passed away, Keen's father left. Tara mentioned earlier that he was a good student. He hadn't ever really gotten in trouble, but they're saying that because he was, I'm assuming, depressed, he fell into this 
cycle with Laura and Laura basically manipulated him to do things and he felt empty and hollow. So he did this. So his mother made this plea like it's basically like, don't take my other son from me. Um, Just give him life. The judges took that into consideration. They took into consideration the defense that he wasn't maybe as cognitively sharp as the rest of his peers. Maybe now 20, he probably was mentally around 14, 15, 16-ish type situation, like where he had a younger, I mean, he was dating a younger girl. I get that he was 19 and she was 16, but people also look at that as like, could he find someone his own age? Why would someone who's 19 years old be bossed around and murder people for a 16-year-old? These were things that were were being questioned. And the judge basically said, look, if this had been the kind of the situation that I, uh, I should say, the feeling I got from reading what the judge's response was, if it had been like one killing, like if they had killed Joseph Wilkerson and that was it, the judge could be like, okay, I get this. You were depressed. You fell into this crowd. You went to do this weird other crime, basically be part of an orgy and things went wrong and you ended up killing the guy. Like, I get it. Like, I mean, they don't get it, but we get we understand like you're having issues. But the fact that you spent two and a half days killing people and you were caught wearing her jacket like he was wearing um, Danita's jacket. Demarcus Smith, when he was caught, was wearing Danita's shoes like they were driving around in Wilkerson's car. It just showed that the, he had little to no remorse or little to no care about the victims in which he was killing. So he was sentenced on, like I said, December 10th, 1993, and he was convicted on one count of aggravated burglary and six counts of aggravated murder. For the aggravated burglary, he was to serve 10 to 25 years. And then afterwards, I don't know if it's consecutive. I don't know how they did this. But then also the six counts of aggravated murder, he was sentenced to death. He had two appeals. He lost both. His execution was set for July 21st, 2009. He didn't want to try to do another appeal or seek clemency because he felt at this point in time, he just wanted to get this over with so that people could find peace at his clemency hearing. Because I think they just hold it. It doesn't matter if he wants it or not. I think it's held. Danita's sister got up and passionately spoke about the fact that like, you took my sister from the world and she could have accomplished great things. She could have been a great person. She could have been a great mother. And he was very quiet through all this, which is I want to comment on. I just think that he was a quiet person. Like a lot of people were like, oh, he shows no remorse because he's not talking. I'm wondering if that's just a character trait, like he's just quiet. And also, like, I think about it like this, like when that reporter was bothering him in the hallway, like think about a teenage boy getting flustered. A lot of times they laugh a lot of like I laugh sometimes when I'm when I feel awkward. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're like, oh, my God, there's all this attention. All I can do is smile or look away or laugh because I don't know how else to place my emotions. And I understand laughter. So that's what I'm going with. Um, I'm not to excusing this or anything, but I'm thinking like maybe people should look at this as just a character trait and not just him being a dick. Yeah, could be. So obviously he wasn't granted clemency. So. Before you're put to death, you were given the opportunity to meet with your family one more time, and he declined it. He just wanted his mom to, like, move on. I mean, that ha- would have to be hard, like, mm-hmm. a mother going to wa- like to see her son for the last time. Like, that's that's got to be hard. He was a good prisoner for the most part. 
um, while he was locked up. He only had two violations and one was like shortly after he was incarcerated. He had his radio too loud and then he never did that again. And then in 2006, he had citation or a violation for having small contraband. That could be anything. That could be an extra pillow. That could be a mm-hmm. <laughs> a candy bar they don't sell at the can- like at the little cantina or the little shop place. Um, so who knows? I don't think it was anything dangerous because I think they would have cited him for that. Yeah. But if you were a patron a few months ago, you would have heard we did a patron episode where we talked about extravagant last meals. I'm pretty sure Keen falls in this. So this is what this guy had for his last meal. He ordered one porterhouse steak medium with a one sauce. He ordered one pound of jumbo shrimp fried with cocktail sauce. He ordered fries and onion rings with ketchup. He ordered dinner rolls with butter and strawberry preserves, two plums, one mango, one pound of seedless white grapes, one German chocolate cake. And I mean the whole cake, not a piece, the whole cake. Jeez. (laughs) Right? He ordered two two liters of Pepsi and two two liters of A&W root beer. Or not root beer, cream soda. Hmm. Sorry. To me, A&W and root beer go together, so it's hard Mm -hmm. for me to be like, cream soda. I just want to say that's all the fucking calories. I mean, (laughs) you're about to die, so. Right. Like, I I started to think about it. And I start like, we talked about this in our last meals episode. Mm -hmm. Think about how long it would take to eat this thing. Yeah, it's crazy. Because porterhouse steaks are huge, I'm pretty sure. Some of those were crazy. (laughs) Mine is my favorite (laughs) one was the olive, though. Sorry. (laughs) You just ordered one olive. Yeah. (laughs) Y'all can go listen. (laughs) If you're a patron. Yes. So on July 21st, 2009, seven members of the victim's family went up to the prison in which he was being held for execution to be witness. Um, I'm not sure if Keen just didn't understand how this was going to work, but and I didn't get that they did this. I always thought like last words were something that were done off to the side, like a priest or someone like that. Or uh, I, I guess I just didn't realize it was going to be um, a microphone in your face. Yeah, like they literally, the they said, they shoved a microphone in his face and said, do you have any last words? And I think this is where that character trait I, I talked about comes in, which is that he's not a talkative guy. So he just said, no, I have no words. And at 1030 on July 21st, 2009, Keen was executed by lethal injection. Obviously... The others are still remaining in prison because they don't parole for, you know, 113, 100 and what, yeah. 13 years, 112 years, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But this case is so sad because, one, they were teenagers. Right. So they were so young. So we, I'm sure people wouldn't have even thought as they rolled up or walked into that mini mart or anything that these kids were going to do something like this. So their guard was down. Also, they had one bad idea that just spiraled out of control. Crazy. It's sad. Mm -hmm. It is. It's so sad. It's just sad all around. And like one of the things that Tara and I talk about a lot, both here and when we talk to each other, is that we also want to acknowledge that there's more victims than just those who lost their lives or were injured or held up at gunpoint. Mm -hmm. The families in this case, because there were so many the f- there's families and also there were other people in the mini mart who weren't injured, mm-hmm. but they're also victims and they have to live with what they saw every single day for the rest of their lives. I believe Marvin Washington's father said 
we will carry on, we will persevere. And that that stuck with me because it's something that, you know, I've lost family members, but it was to like sickness. Mm-hmm. I've never had someone in my close family be murdered. So I don't know the emotional range of that, but I'm sure there's a lot of unfinished closure that people need. So just remember that when you hear true crime cases and stuff like that, that there's more victims than just those who passed. Mm-hmm. So there's families and friends and then witnesses that also become victimized by this. Yeah. And that is all I have. All right. Well, that is going to wrap us up here for our regular episode this week. We hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Again, check the show notes for any links that we talked about. If you'd like to read more into this case um, and all of that great stuff, head to our sources page. If you'd like to enter our ugly Christmas sweater contest, you can come to the Facebook group or, you know, send your submission through any other social channels. We would love to see them. And we will see you on Thursday for our next Stabby Snippet. You guys have a good day. Bye, guys. Bye.